murder, divorce, drugs. Our courts are full of stories, scary, sad, and hilarious. Most are tales stranger than fiction. These are true law stories, brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com, the ultimate resource for customer and client video stories. On this true law stories, we're going to talk criminal cases, we're going to talk security clearance cases, and kindergartners getting accused of sexual harassment with Lori Wurzel. Lori, say hi. Hi. We're going to talk more about how she's handled security security clearance cases, the Title IX cases, and the scary consequences of sexual assault allegations in schools. All this on True Law Stories. Of course, this is brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com. One of the best ways to grow your business is through your client stories. Go to VideoCaseStory.com, learn how we can help you collect, craft, and deliver those. All right, let's get started. Let's talk a little bit about your law practice and you know where you are and what you do. Yeah, so I'm Lori Wurzel, and my law partner is my husband, so it's all a family affair, and we're in Winter Park, Florida. It's a criminal defense firm, but as we'll talk about some more, I do more of like appeals, post-conviction, and some administrative things that are, as I say, collateral consequences of being accused of a crime or something that could be a crime. And how did you get into criminal law in the first place? I started my career at the public defender's office, like many criminal defense attorneys do in the Ninth Circuit, which is here in Orlando, right out of law school, as most public defenders do. And I I really did that on a whim a little bit. When I was graduating, I was super young and didn't really have a great idea of what I wanted to do. And I loved, I always loved like the underdog. I like community service. I like the idea of like public interest and helping people. And I loved trial practice. I really loved like being in front of juries and things like that. So I always knew I didn't want to sit at a desk and have someone telling me I had to work every weekend and bill a certain number of hours that that never appealed to me. So that's how I ended up there. And that's where I met Ben, my partner, my husband. Uh, And being a public defender is a lot of work, isn't it? (laughs) It is, but it it truly never felt like work. It really was one of those jobs that I think probably almost everyone feels this way. It's just every day is different and everything's interesting, (laughs) of course, on on a certain level, but it was, it also felt like it mattered. I, I just, it was a really great experience. I think ultimately it was emotionally taxing for me. I did it for almost six years. Wow. It's measured in dog years. <laughs> <as opposed laughs> office, that's the equivalent of 25 years. And so the way it works at most public defender's offices, you start out doing misdemeanors and that's all you do. And then you gradually increase. So by the end of a few years, five years or so, you're only doing serious things. So every client I had, if we lost a trial, was going away for life. And so that was just, wow. I don't like to, I say, have a front row seat to watch terrible things like that happen for people. I don't like that. And so it was emotionally taxing, which is why I started finding other things to do a little bit. I can only imagine. It's just, oh, and then it, it, you, even if you slightly know they're guilty, it's bad. But then like, you, you, I'm sure you had some people who are like, I'm pretty sure this person's not guilty. Oh, I would say people always say on an airplane or like wherever that, did you ever have a really guilty client? Is that hard? And I would say, no, innocent people are the worst people to represent because it's pressure. If you think someone might not have done something or maybe they didn't 
do what they're being accused of to that level that warrants a certain punishment. That's the kind of stuff that keeps you up at night. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I just can't imagine that. It's, I'm like, my team's like, we got all these phone calls. And there's so much pressure. I'm like, no one's going to jail. No one's dying because of their videos. I say so, that all the time. My husband will still say when I'm stressed about something, is anyone going to prison? And I say, no. And he says, that's a good day. <laughs> but I think that's like the other thing too, is that I worked there like 2007 to 2013 was the time frame. So this is before George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all of these more nationally recognized. It was before even Trayvon Martin. So we, none of those things were a surprise to me or to anyone who's worked in that field. You're like, yeah, of course, these things, they happen all the time. Yeah. But when you are aware of those things and it feels like no one else in the public is and you feel almost like crazy and it makes you for me it made me like angry a lot of the time just to I was really jaded about the police about everything because I grew up in a way that I didn't know those things I didn't honor those things so that's when I first started learning a lot of that stuff yeah yeah it's it's a whole nother world it's a whole nother world that we've talked to so many of these criminal defense clients or criminal defense lawyers and they're like it's just once someone's been through the system it's a whole different perspective on what's going on there. And we could get into the politics of it, but let's talk a little bit. So you start to do like professional licensing, security clearance cases, because that's a natural byproduct of it. People don't understand that. Like, how does that happen? Explain to me, like someone, how does the, how do those professional licensing cases happen? So when I left the public defender, I started teaching because I was having like this, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I don't want to do any other kind of law. So I started teaching and then my husband eventually opened our firm and I did it with him. So I was doing both. I was practicing when I would get a case, but I also was teaching. And my husband only wanted to do criminal defense. He's board certified in that. So if something else would come up with a client, he would say, do you want to try that? And I'd say, sure. And I would just start trying different things that were other issues that clients were having, or maybe a question that they would have about how something would impact their teaching license or whatever. And the very first kind of wild thing that I did that my husband's, I can't believe you're going (laughs) to, you're going to do this thing. You don't, you don't even know about this is we had a client who was charged with some really serious crimes. And he ended up getting a plea deal to a lesser charge that was just probation. And it was such a sweet deal. We were so excited. He was so relieved because he was facing life in prison when he got probation. But then he got a call a week later from his job where he had really high level security clearance from the federal government. And they said, we saw that you pled to something you're going to lose your federal security clearance, which would mean he'd lose his job. And he reached out to us. And so I'm immediately, I started trying to connect him with a lawyer who does that. And we didn't really find anyone in the area who would do that. And so he, the client kept encouraging that he wanted me to do it. And so I said, all right, as long as I've not done this before, that's fine. And so I really just started digging in to the process. And so one thing about criminal law that I now appreciate that I didn't before is how structured it is. There's so many rules and procedure that are fairly predictable. And if a judge doesn't follow them, which certainly happens, there are pretty immediate ways to challenge that. You can do a writ or go to an appellate court. 
it's not perfect by any means, but it's there's a lot of due process involved in criminal proceedings. And when you go into something administrative, like a federal security clearance, there are rules, but they're not terribly transparent and they don't have to give you the same amount of due process for a lot of things that I was used to. So it was a lot harder to figure out like, what are the rules and what are, what are our rights? And also as the federal government, they were pretty opaque (laughs) about things. And so just kind of wrote a bunch of notes and found different random things from different places and put it all together. And I felt like it was like throwing spaghetti at the wall (laughs) to see what (laughs) would stick and just threw it out there. And two months later, we get, he called me and said they contacted him and they were dropping the issue and he was allowed to keep his job and and they never even told us why which of our arguments <laughs> that, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, were successful but it was like it was my first realization of this is really cool because like it's almost like a mystery and almost yeah. like detective work and uh, still really important but not the same pressure of someone going to prison that was the beginning of it that's interesting it's an interesting thing because someone doesn't have to necessarily even be convicted, right, of a criminal case and lose their license or lose security clearance. So for a lot of professional licensing things, what they're doing, which that's not professional licensing, but it's like that, is that they don't have to see that you have a conviction or something But a lot of times they're going to wait to see what happens because most of the time a plea, regardless of if it's to a way reduced charge or whatever, is under most of those kinds of rules, that's it. You're done. You can't have a defense. And as from doing this for so long, people plead to things all the time that they didn't do. If you're facing life in prison on multiple counts, mandatory life, his charges were mandatory life without parole if he went to trial and lost. And someone says, hey, you can plead to this third degree felony with just probation. Well, yeah. you care if you did it? Most people don't. <laughs> no, gonna- yeah. It's a big gamble to, to go to. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a huge gamble. And it's just, okay, let's do this. Wrong place, wrong time. I would take the plea. Yeah. <laughs> situation. So I think that they're just waiting to see if you plea because then that makes their job easier. And so in this case, that was part of the trick is how do we find a way out of this? Since technically that means you've admitted to this particular violation. Yeah, it's 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 scary and crazy and so many things to think about. And and we're seeing a lot. It's not that you can lose a license in school, but there's like similar criminal impacts into kids' lives now too, aren't there? Yeah. And so that's part of why I mentioned that I, before that I took a period of time where I was teaching and moonlighted as a teacher, so to speak for a while is because that's what really led to one of my big areas of practice now, which is school discipline stuff. I think it makes me sometimes more credible in certain situations that I've worked for schools. I've worked for public school district here and things like that. And I also understand the mindset I think of what public school teachers and administrators are dealing with. And there's a huge fear, even before any of the kind of politics of everything, there's always a fear in schools of being like sued. And you forget that when I was teaching, I was already a lawyer. So I would think, why are you guys afraid of that? That, That's not going to happen. That doesn't even make sense. They can't sue you for that. But, but people don't usually become teachers because they want to 
fight about yeah. they're <laughs> dealing with lawsuits. They're about the kids and they tend to shy away from anything and err on the side of caution. And so there's a lot of CYA, so to speak, that goes on in the school system and in the environment that we're in now, as you're mentioning, with violence in schools is obviously one big thing that people are understandably terrified about. And and then also the effects of the Me Too movement. And there's, as a result of that, been changes in Title IX, the federal laws that govern a lot of things relating to sex discrimination, but it includes sexual harassment, which covers any sort of sexual harassment or sexual assaults that happen in schools. So those are the two big categories of things that I've been dealing with a lot in K through 12 and in college environments. And it's, we were talking about before, it's trickling down to even little kids, isn't it? Yeah. So that's the crazy thing is I think that there's these environments now of zero tolerance, essentially, for these kind of topics that we're talking about. And as a result, that means they are literally treating everybody the same, even if you're five years old. I've had clients and even more kind of calls lately than ever about kindergartners. I even had a pre-K who is in a K through 12 environment for sexual harassment which it's mind boggling that you could even think that a child yeah. of that even has that intent or that ability to have that intent. Yeah. And- <laughs> or even have any idea what they're doing. No, no. <laughs> and so some of it, sometimes you'll see things that probably are concerning and might be indicative of some sort of abuse that child is encountering and certainly is yeah. serious. But even then, it seems to me that the child shouldn't be punished because it's a sign of something if you're five years old. A lot of the things I'm seeing are just childish, immature, regular kindergartner or second grader behavior, but even like the kind of smacking each other on the rear or something in a playful way, that can lead to basically expelling a five-year-old for for sexual harassment. That's crazy. That's crazy. I'm like... No offense, but I, I once in a while smack my butt, my wife's butt. And so my son sees it and he goes and copies me and doesn't know well, what he's doing. Yeah. And look, it's like, I'm a woman and I, I think that there's so many good things about awareness of things that really were accepted when I was a kid or a teenager that in retrospect shouldn't have been. <laughs> I think that there's some great points and outcomes from those sort of movements. And additionally, I think when you have zero tolerance, for anything, one of the good things is that it's more likely that people are being treated equally. So you have less, um, it's helping at least with disparities of racial or socioeconomic differences and suspensions and school discipline. The downside of it is when we were kids, teachers and administrators had a lot of latitude to use common sense of what really was a problem or what was really an issue or what was the intent was, and there's just no room for that anymore at all for administrators. And once that ball gets rolling, the problem is it's really difficult to stop it because you do not have a lot of due process rights in these proceedings. And so part of what I've been trying to do is take them as far as they need to be taken. And I've been taking some of them to court. Once the proceedings are over, there are ways to take these things outside of the school district or outside of the university into court. 
Yeah. And I mean, it, because it's, we did a true law stories about this once before where a, a college kid was uh, accused of rape. And the second that accusation hits, he's expelled. And then they prove it, it was, I always say there's bad things, but there are people that once they get down that path, they can't turn around, can they? The person that the accuser can't turn around and say, oh, I was wrong halfway through this. So now his life is ruined. So you, you, I guess the legal way is the only way to help these people, right? Yeah. And there's practical effects of things outside of what you would automatically think of. So I have a case similar to what you're talking about that's in a university setting. It's Title IX, sexual assault. And we appealed within the university. The universities usually have some sort of way to appeal within the school system or within their university. So we appealed the first hearing and we won within the university and they reversed it. But their remedy for that was, we find that you're correct, that there were all these issues with the investigation. We didn't follow basically any of the rules we were (laughs) supposed to, because there's so many more protections in these cases since they're governed by Title IX and federal law. We didn't follow Title IX. You're correct. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back and redo the investigation with the same investigator. And she's allowed to use all the same information from before. Um, So it was obviously pointless. So we had to go through these steps. And so because of that, it took, he was about to start his sophomore year when this happened. By the time we did his second hearing, he was in the second semester of his senior year. Wow. And oh my God. And so then he loses the second hearing. We do the appeal again. We lose the internal appeal because they say, no, we fixed it after the first time, even though nothing was fixed as a result of that. So then we went to court and when he finally got it, he got suspended for two semesters effective immediately. So it suspended him in the middle of his last semester. Oh my gosh. So he, not only did he lose his tuition for the middle of the semester, but they wanted to charge him because he had like bright futures. So the state of Florida was asking for money back from him because it was the middle of the semester. And he was in all these senior seminars. So it's basically going to put it off his graduation like two years effectively because of when it occurred. And so we appealed within the circuit court system and we did a motion for stay, which is basically asking the circuit court to find that they should pause. They should tell the university they're not allowed to impose those disciplinary sanctions until, until the case, the appeal is over. And that motion was more important in a way than what happens on the ultimate appeal. (laughs) Because if we lost that motion for stay and they were allowed to impose this, the punishment was already there. He wasn't going to graduate. And so we had two weeks (laughs) before he, because we needed him to be able to get back in to do his final exams. Every day I'm calling the court, can we please get a ruling? Can we please? And three days to spare, the judge grants it. So he actually just walked at graduation last weekend. Our appeal hasn't been decided yet, but like I said, that was the most impactful part is being able to get into the court and have someone look at what's going on. Oh, that, and I just can't imagine that you have, once again, you have this kid's like future in your hands and you're like, oh, and just waiting and waiting. Wow. That's intense. I don't know if that's, it's almost more intense than the the criminal cases. Yeah. Um, And I think that's, it's part of why it's helpful since I do appeals too, because I do like criminal appeals and I like doing that. 
it's helpful that a lot of the attorneys who do like education law or things like that in the discipline setting aren't necessarily the same attorneys that will send it to circuit court. They tap out at that point. And so they'll refer it out. And so it's really helpful that I can do both. And it's helpful for me because I already know the case and I don't have to get caught up to speed. And so you just need the right clients who are willing to take it as far as you need to take it. But I really, honestly, that's where you have to, some of the wrongs of what's going on in, in the school system is in court. Wow. These are interesting stories. And since you're in Orlando, we're definitely going to have you back to the studio sometime. But in the meantime, if someone has one of these types of cases, professional licensing case, criminal case, or Title IX case, what's the best way to get in touch with you? They can find us on the internet anywhere. So it's Wurzel Law. (laughs) There's not really any other Wurzel, especially not in town. So it's W-U-R-T-Z-E-L, Wurzel. And so we have our website and everything there and our phone number. And we're all over social media as well on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Awesome. We'll put links to all that in the show notes. But Laurie, thank you so much for being on True Law Stories. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for taking Laurie and I on your journey. This has been I Garlic and True Law Stories. True Law Stories has been brought to you by videocasestory.com. Testimonials stink. No one wants to watch a testimonial or read a case study. You need video case stories for your business. Go to videocastory.com to learn more.